you to turn in a copy of God's Word to John chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 1,666. 1,666, John chapter 10. So these next two weeks, we're on a bit of a, um, a detour. Uh, we're heading to Joshua, by the way. Uh, that's where we're heading on Sunday mornings. We'll start that in a few weeks. And on Wednesday nights, uh, after the current mini-series we're doing, we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed, I believe. Uh, so um, I encourage you to uh, be thinking ahead in those two areas. Um, so this morning, we're talking about elders. And next week, we're talking about deacons. Uh, that's because officer nominations will be opening up uh, next week. We'll have about a two and a half week period uh, to give you the opportunity to be praying about uh, the men that you would like to see nominated to stand for uh, deacon and uh, elder. I'm going to be explaining a little more of that process next week when we have a handout uh, to that end. Uh, but I want to look, as we did last year, I'm sure you've done, many years before that, at the qualifications and roles of these two offices uh, as we uh, look to do this uh, duty of, of choosing men who will govern and serve uh, uh, the congregation and serve the Lord. So the word Presbyterian is a, is a strange word. It's a hard word. And, and you know, I was typing this week, and even I misspelled it a few times. Uh, you know, Presbyterian is one of those words words that um, makes many people wonder who exactly we are. First Presbyterian church. What does that even mean? Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbyteros. That means elder. Uh, All this means is to be a Presbyterian church is that we are a church that is led by elders. Um, Now, Presbyterian churches also uh, traditionally have a uh, follow what's called the Reformed faith, uh, but there are some Presbyterian churches that don't. Um, The word presbyteros occurs in Scripture, and it occurs in Scripture along two other words that uh, are interchangeable. Uh, They are uh, bishop, or overseer, as the ESV translates it, uh, and shepherd, or pastor. We find these words in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, used in the same uh, couple verses, the noun form or the verbal form, used to refer to the same person. And so uh, these three words all refer to an elder, to someone whom the Lord has called to help lead his church. Here at our church, in our denomination, there are two types of elders. There are ruling elders, and these are the ones that you will elect in due season, as we get later in the fall. Uh, Ruling elders are those that are laymen who have been called out of a congregation to to lead it. And you also have teaching elders. I'm I'm a teaching elder. I've been ordained uh, for gospel ministry to preach the word and to administer the sacraments. Uh, But we have the same authority. Teaching elders and ruling elders are, are elders. There's one office, elder, and we have the same authority. We come together once a month or or so, or more when needed, uh, for something called the session. And the session is the gathering or the group of elders that come together uh, to seek the Lord uh, for direction as we seek to shepherd and oversee uh, the flock. So those, that's nuts and bolts of, of what an elder is and, and what we're called to do as you think about whom you'd like to see nominated. Uh, but this morning as we look at what it means to be an elder, I want to focus this morning, this year, on especially this role as shepherd. Uh, an elder is a shepherd, or under-shepherd rather, of the flock. 
Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep who by the blood of the eternal covenant laid down his life for us. We're going to speak about that again in the, in the benediction. It's from Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, but under shepherds are called, elders are called to be under shepherds to serve the Lord and to serve his people. To that end, I want to look at John chapter 1, 1 through 18 before we launch into the characteristics of those who are called to be elders. But before we do, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord for his blessing upon our time. Our Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to understand. Lord, open your word to us. And open our hearts, flay them open, that they might receive what you would have for us this morning. Give us wisdom and guidance as we seek to um, nominate and elect elders and also deacons. Uh, Lord, that you might raise up the men of your choosing, uh, that you might continue to bless our church. Father, grant me anointing as well as the hearers that we might see and hear this morning. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. John 10, 1-18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Well, as we look at what it means to be a shepherd, what it means to be an under-shepherd of the flock, I think it would do us well to look at the example of how Christ shepherds the flock. We see many things from this text, but in the interest of time, I'll only point out a few. And the first is that we see how our shepherd shepherded us. That's a tongue twister if there ever were one. How does our shepherd shepherd us? It is a sacrificial shepherding. How did he do it? He laid down his life for the flock. 
We see this several times in the text. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. 17 and 18, we find it stated several times. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. How did our shepherd, how does Jesus shepherd us primarily? It is by laying down his life for us. And here we see his, his love displayed and made manifest because when the, when the scriptures describe us as sheep, this isn't a flattering thing. Sheep are, are stupid animals. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They'll, they'll go off of cliffs if they're not saved from doing so. You'll lead them to water and they won't drink. They'll wander away and won't know how to get back. You'll lead them to grass and they won't eat until you make them to. They are not the wisest of animals. And then when you consider who we were before Christ died for us, before He laid down His life for His sheep, we don't see ourselves as commendable. As I've said before, the only thing that we contribute to our, our salvation is our sin. And yet the shepherd loved us so much that he would become the Lamb of God. We can affirm that our shepherd is both the one who shepherds us and guides us and guards us and protects us and provides for us. And at the same time, he is the one according to John chapter 1. Here is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. How does he shepherd us? He shepherds us by laying down his life for us. And therefore the under-shepherd of the sheep must have the same mentality that we would lay down our lives for the sheep that the Lord has entrusted to us. There are some that may, um, in other churches I'm sure, may aspire to be an elder to get the name only. But to become an elder is to become the chief servant. It is to become one who will lay down his life for the flock that the Lord has granted to him. We do this to serve the flock. And we do this to ensure that we can point others to Jesus. But there's a close relationship that we enjoy as Christians with the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord and Savior. We see this throughout our text, but I think nowhere more um, amazingly, if that's a word, uh, in verse 15, just as the, 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The intimate relationship that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy together as one God in three persons, the Trinity, the triune Godhead. This is the way that we are allowed in some measure to know our Savior. That we know our Savior just as He knows the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is a personal relationship with the Lord. Isn't that a fantastic thing, fantastic thing that we can have a personal relationship with the sovereign creator and king of all of creation? And it's not a standoffish kind of relationship, is it? It's not a comeback later kind of relationship. It's not a I'm too busy kind of relationship, is it? Our, our, our Savior beckons to us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He loves it when we come to him. And so the, the under-shepherd of the flock has, has much to learn in this personal relationship 
You know, um, I've been a member of, of several different PCA churches. And, and the first one I was a member of was Trinity Church Montgomery. It's 1,200 members or so. I think it's up to 1,400 members now. So it's a huge church. It's a fantastic church. But you know, I only knew a few of my elders to any kind of depth. And I've been a member of two smaller churches, one in Tuscaloosa and, and a medium-sized one, rather, in Birmingham. And you know, the smaller the church, the better you know your elders. Because you have more access and more opportunity to know and to be known. This is one of the greatest benefits of being in a smaller church. Is that we can be known by the shepherds, of the under-shepherds of God's flock. And we can come to them when there are problems and we need help and we need prayer and we need ministry. The role of the under-shepherd is to know his flock well, to pray with and for them, to visit them, to love them. We also see that, that Jesus isn't done leading us. Even now when the sheep hear his voice, not audibly, we're not speaking in an audible voice. When the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. He know, his sheep know his voice. The Savior continues to lead us. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the body of the church. Christ is the foundation of the church. Christ is the capstone of the church. These are all metaphors that are used in Scripture to speak of Christ's ongoing ministry on our behalf. It's not like He went to heaven and now He no longer shepherds us. And what this means is that I'm not the head of this church. The elders aren't the head of this church. The session's not even the head of this church. Christ, Jesus, is the head of this church. And we seek as elders as a session to serve the Lord as we seek to serve His people. So the primary role of an elder, I believe, is to shepherd the flock. And indeed we find in Hebrews that God will call elders to account of how they have shepherded the flock that has been entrusted to them. That is a sobering thought. But a shepherd, an elder, an overseer, a pastor also has other duties. As we seek to shepherd the flock, we also seek to oversee the flock. And this refers to the administrative and organizational details of the church, of, of monitoring and encouraging the functions of the church. We also are called to guard the flock. We see this from the text. That just like the hired hand when it um, hears the wolf or sees the wolf, it, he flees. Not so the shepherd, the under-shepherd of God's flock. We are called to guard the flock. Um, to make sure nothing biblical, unbiblical or heretical is taught. Uh, to guide and direct. But also we are called to be an example of the flock. An example to the flock, rather. So these are the... These are the this is the call to be an elder shepherd, an under-shepherd. But, but who should be nominated for an elder? Whom should we uh, seek to put up for election? Well, the scriptures are, are very clear about this, actually. It gives us two lists, a very succinct list. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, where we find these qualifications of men who are called to be elders. Let's, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you're using your pew Bible, that's uh, 1847. 1 Timothy, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, rather. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
We see here in, in Titus 1 uh, a list of qualifications for an overseer or for an elder. You see here in, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy the word overseer used or a, episkopos, a bishop. Uh, and in Titus 1 you see the word elder used. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's turn over to Titus chapter 1. That's two books to the right. Um, 1857 in the Pew Bible. Titus chapter 1 and a few verses we see a little bit of overlap but also a few other things mentioned here in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now who in the world would ever fit all these qualifications? (laughs) Uh, who in the world could ever stand up for nomination if we must be blameless and faultless and perfect in all of these things? This is a very sobering list as we, as we think about this list from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as we put them together. It's a very sobering list indeed. I don't want to remove the, the high calling of, of these texts, of the high standard of these texts. But also to say that, that we are called to live repentant lives. And everyone will find many things in these lists that he needs to work on to, um, to seek the Lord for help on. If you ever find the perfect elder, run. Because one doesn't exist. If you ever find the perfect pastor, run. If you ever find the perfect church, run. Um... Because the, the, the perfect pastor, elder, uh, church does not exist, at least this side of heaven. But as we look at, these, look at these characteristics, these characteristics are meant to define these men. And where there are problems, that, uh, they should be characterized by repentance and seeking the Lord to give them strength. I want to, in broad strokes, speak about these qualifications. I won't be hitting every one of them because there are so many. Um, But following a man named Kent Hughes, I want to divide these into four divisions to help us kind of get a a grapple around these many, many qualifications. The first is that an elder ought to be a man above reproach. 
We see that in 1 Timothy 3, 2. In some way, this might be a heading for all of the qualifications. To be above reproach might be translated also as blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. One who is living a repentant lifestyle and whose lives are characterized uh, by these things we find uh, here. Why is it important that elders be above reproach or blameless? Uh, Kent Hughes says, It is a sober fact that as goes the leadership, so goes the church. That is a very sobering thing as a pastor to read. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. A man who is meant to be above reproach is an elder who is well thought of by outsiders, especially unbelievers. I think I shared this last year with you, um, but in Birmingham I knew of a church, it was a Baptist church actually, that had elders, uh, and they took out a full page ad in the Birmingham News uh, for a long period, and had the pictures and names of all their elder candidates, and said, if you have anything significant against these men, send us a letter. Wow! Had to be signed. (laughs) Uh... A man who is well thought of by outsiders. Especially as we seek to to grow as a church and see the the, the lost evangelized. This would be very important. An elder must be respectable. Um, 1 Timothy 3.2 Can you count on them? Um... Are they, is it a man worthy of your respect? Do they manage their own affairs well? He must not be a recent convert. We find this in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, he must not be a recent convert so that he might not become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Um, we also see, and perhaps one of the most significant qualifications is that a man who desires to be an overseer, and that's a good aspiration, by the way, according to this text, must be a man with godly relationships. Godly relationships. And we see this first and foremost in the home. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The word household here, um, is, I think there's a Greek yogurt by this name. Have you heard of oikos yogurt? Have you seen this? This is, this is household in Greek. I have no clue why it's the name of this Greek, of this uh, Greek yogurt. It means household. Uh, a household it was much bigger than just your immediate family. It also included sometimes those who worked for you. Uh, if you had any servants who worked for you. Uh, your extended family who likely lived with you. Your in-laws would probably live with you. You have a family compound. This was the oikos the household. Does he manage his household well? Um, You know, I think in the home is where we find leadership skills tried and tested, as one commentator says. It is the primary place where leaders are grown uh, in the household. You know, my brother-in-law is a... a, Not my brother-in-law, my brother, rather. (laughs) I don't want to disown my brother. My brother is a stockbroker, and and he, at the end of everything he produces, he's got this little caveat, and sometimes he'll even tell you when he's talking to you, past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Uh, So that way, if he sells you some stocks and it goes down, then, you know, he's off the hook. Uh, The thing is, though, when it comes to character... Track records are important, right? Track records are very important. 
As we talk about a man with godly relationships, especially with the home, he must be a husband of one wife. Or the Greek ten, uh, literally says, a one-woman man. An elder doesn't have to be married. That's not what this means. And if it is a biblical divorce, um, then he may be divorced. Uh, but a, a, an elder must be a, a one-woman man. It means that uh, if an elder is married, then his, this man is completely dedicated to his wife. He's not a flirt. He doesn't look for or thrive off the attention of women, not his wife. He doesn't have a wandering eye. He's not looking for a relationship outside his marriage. Uh, the first person he goes to when he has problems is his wife. He cherishes her and loves her and hides nothing from her. He sacrifices his life for her. He leads her spiritually. He prays with and for her. He is her number one encourager, always building her up. He never speaks ill of his wife in front of others, but instead praises her beauty, kindness, and generosity. He helps her with the children and gives her breaks. He puts her concerns before his own and seeks to at every possible outcome, every possible situation, to put her problems before his own. This is a one-woman man. This is a one-woman man. Obviously, no one's perfect in this area. But but, uh, it's a very important qualification. By the way, 1 Timothy 3.11 says that the wives of deacons must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. And I think most commentators agree that this not only applies to deacons, but also to, uh, to elders, that their wives need to be walking with the Lord. The second, the children need to be believers. Children need to be believers, especially if they're in the household. Uh, grown children, I think, may be a different category, but, but uh, in the household, they need to be walking with the Lord and free from the charge of debauchery, as Titus adds. These are tough qualifications, aren't they? Must be a man of blameless conduct. There are seven positive statements here and six negative. Don't worry, we won't hit them all. But just a couple. He must be sober-minded. This means uh, that he indicates clarity of mind and resulting good judgment. That's really important when you're making big decisions. Not just reactionary. He must be gentle. Our Savior is gentle as a shepherd. And as a shepherd, as an under-shepherd, he must be gentle. And not a, a lover of evil, but a lover of good. He must be holy or devout, according to Titus 1. That means walking with the Lord. He must be disciplined. If he tells you he's going to do something, does he do it? Negative. He must not be a drunkard. It's not a sin to drink. Uh, Although for some people they they may be. Uh, It is not a sin to drink, but he must not be a drunkard. Uh, He must not be violent or quarrelsome or a lover of money or greedy. Titus 1.7 says he must not be arrogant must be humble. But perhaps even more important is this fourth category, a man of faithful witness in ministry. In this category, we see that he must be hospitable and apt to teach. That doesn't mean he has to be able to, to teach a systematic theology class, but it does mean he needs to be able to fill in from time to time and clearly be able to present the gospel. But so important is this last one. Titus 1 verse 9. He must know the Word and the Gospel. He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must know the Gospel in his own heart. 
If he is to be gentle and to apply the love of Jesus to others, he must know the forgiveness of God that he has received in his own heart first. And he needs to know the Word of God that he might be able to apply it to hard situations. In order to be gentle, he must know the gospel and be ready to apply it to others. Well, perhaps um, if this weren't the Word of God, we would say this is far too high a standard. And as an elder, this is a hard text to speak on. Because all I see is, is how many ways I have failed and don't measure up. But perhaps one of the greatest qualifications not listed here is the um, awareness that someone is not worthy. If a man thinks he is worthy to serve the Lord as an officer, that can be a very dangerous thing indeed at all. A man must be humble and see that apart from God's grace, he could never stand for office. But God, because He uses broken vessels, because He uses those who were wretch, but now made into justified sinner saints, struggling with sin each and every day, but seeking to be repentant before the Lord and to seek His forgiveness, when sin uh, abounds in one's life, and to seek the good of others. This is the man that you ought to look for as you think about whom you will nominate. Um, we come full circle to the fact that, that Jesus is the great shepherd. And it is the role of the under-shepherd to always be pointing not to himself, but to the true shepherd. John said, I am not the Christ, nor are your elders. There is but one Christ, and He died on the cross for you. And may we always point you to Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to always point others to you. Lord, who could ever stand, um, who could ever be elected Father, these are hard qualifications. But Lord, may we all walk before you in a uh, humble and contrite way. Father, with no unrepentance in our life, living circumspect lives before you, that we, you might use us, not just uh, elders and deacons, but Father, you might use all of us to point others to the great shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life, that we might have life. So Father... O Lord, like a shepherd, lead us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.